Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is my monthly feature of Our Voices, the seventh episode in the series. As a reminder, I created Our Voices with the intention of giving you an inside view of my guests' life journey and what's shaped them to help you gain empathetic understanding of people you might not otherwise encounter. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I invite you to listen with curiosity and without judgment and digest what may be a very different experience of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. Perhaps in unexpected ways, you'll also see a bit of yourself in these journeys and embrace or more similar than not. My guest is a kindred spirit and someone I admire. Beyond what he's done and how he's done it, it's who he is who's helped countless to raise the bar for themselves and fulfill their potential. He's a world-class athlete, a three-time Olympian in track and field, but also professional football. And I recently learned he even swam and played water polo as a youth. Growing up in Great Britain, he represented his country internationally at age 18 and was recruited to the U.S. by SMU in Dallas. And in his first year, won the NCAA title, going on to break records and garner many All-American honors. While competing, he entered coaching, including at Brown and Stanford universities. Currently, he serves as a throws coach at the University of Missouri. What I find remarkable is he's coached athletes to elite levels of performance, not just in his field events of hammer and discus, but also Olympians in swimming. Most importantly, He's an adoring father to two bright lights who are finding their way in the world. I'm honored that my dear friend, Robert Weir, is joining us today. Good evening, everyone, and thanks for having me, Molly. Um, <laughs> I'm excited to be here. <laughs> well, I'm always jazzed when you and I have any chance to connect, so it's super fun. And you know, before I turn it back over to you, I do have to remark, because I'm always in awe of how we met. And so, folks, we're on an airplane. Uh, we're in the front row of coach, which is the exit row, okay, where they have the three seats, or no, two seats, and they have that metal plate that's in between two seats. So I'm, you know, I'm 5'4", 50 kilos, and my friend Robert is maybe three times my size. So I'm seeing a person in a track suit, obviously with some athletes in, in this plane. He comes and sits down. I've got my headphone on pretending, you know, and I'm not really noticing anything. He sits into the chair, and I can feel the chair squeezing as he sits into the chair. And I'm just kind of holding, biting my lip, and I go, I look at you, and I say, well, at least we have a lot of leg room. (laughs) You looked at me, and I never talk to people on an airplane. And for the entire ride from California, from San Francisco back to New York, we were nonstop talking. Do you remember that? I remember it very well. It was very funny. (laughs) <laughs> it was hilarious. And then I should say, folks, just synergistically, so I had, you know, yoga and flexibility and 
obviously Robert has, you know, was at the gym in Stanford and we had this trade off. And for six weeks, he would help me with some strength training and I would help him with some flexibility. And let me just be clear that it goes to show that we got the knee so much further down. You sat Indian style. It was kind of like the knees were kind of quite high up in the air. And by the end of the six weeks, you were really opening up. So I just want to give you big credit for that gain in flexibility in just six short weeks. You, 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 you also have to tell them you're very strong now and that you can pick me up with one hand. <laughs> yeah, except that, except that I'd be lying, okay? I would be lying. <laughs> okay, Robert, I am so grateful for you joining us. And, you know, I, I would love for listeners to have a chance to get to know you and, and hear about your story in life. Um, my mom and my dad are both from Jamaica. And they, and they met and married in, uh, in Great Britain, in England to be precise. And uh, I was born in 1961 and um, grew up in Birmingham. Uh, um, I'm one of um, seven. I, I have uh, four brothers and, and two sisters. Um, and uh, it was really quite an ordinary, ordinary life, or at least so I thought at first, because what really was ordinary to me wasn't necessarily the same story that other people had. I mean, uh, I, I do remember saying uh, to one of my, my friends, his mother, she said, um, I said, I, for, I forgot to buy the bread for, uh, for the weekend. And she said, well, I've got a loaf or two you can have. I said, I said the problem is I need six. <laughs> and the shops are shut. So <laughs> it was one of the funniest stories. But um, uh, growing up, my mom, um, my sister had moved away. She was a little bit older, so she'd moved away. And um, so there's really six of us that are all within the same age or close to. So um, we all went to... Um, a school called Hansworth Grammar School in Birmingham. And uh, that grammar school was yet to take a special exam to be accepted. And, uh, and at the time, we were, at, at the time there were um, my four brothers and I, we all had passed that exam. So there was this school. At that, at that school, five of us went to the grammar school. And apparently that was some sort of um, school record for the number of boys at the same grammar school. And we were actually, with, at one point, we were actually, all of us were there at the same time. So... I, I remember that well. And it was there that my, at Hansard Grammar School, that my um, athletics and sporting career really started to, to grow. Um, I was introduced to, I passed the exam and I went to the school and I was introduced to um, soccer, which I was already been playing, but I wasn't any good really. Um, basketball, table tennis, uh, chess, swimming, all sorts. And then, there was, um, and then there was a club and it was called, the, it's really like an alumni association, but it was uh, Hansard Grammar um, it's called Andrews Grammar Old Boys Swimming Club. And so that was the Alumni Association. That's where I learned to, um, to play water polo. So I started playing water polo there, as well as swimming, as well as doing athletics. And um, I wasn't particularly good in any of those sports at first. But um, I think as I started to grow and develop, I, I decided that um, I wanted to be good. And I think right there was the start of the career, is just deciding that you wanted to, I wanted to do something or to achieve something. And that really set me on the path towards um, a sporting career. Um, by the time I was by the time I was seventeen, I was one of the leading competitors for, for Great Britain in the discus. And then in eighteen, I was at age eighteen, I was uh, in the discus as well as in the hammer, competing for, for Great Britain internationally. And uh, that was at the under twenty level. And of course, by the time I was uh, by the time I was nineteen twenty, I was competing for Great Britain as a, at the senior level. It was also at that same time. Um, around about 1980 that I got recruited to SMU. And ironically, it was, a, it was by a triple jumper 
but you know Keith Connor, who himself was an international for Great Britain uh, triple jumper, and he said, "You should come with me to SMU because uh, if you come with me there, what you'll find is that you won't feel that you're alone, and at least you'll have somebody else from Great Britain to talk to, and we'll be able to help you navigate America and American colleges, as well as be able to find a, find a way or a pathway back home when you when you need to compete for Britain during the summer." Now. One of the things was is that I wanted to go home because uh, we were a very close-knit family. And um, so I knew that in order to go back to Britain, um, competing at a, at a level or a standard that was an international standard would provide me the opportunity because at that point then, uh, Great Britain would say it would happily pay for me to return back to England and accommodations and all sorts of things. So that became, so that became the goal. And my first year at SMU, uh, uh, I met the coach. And one of the things that was funny was I, I met the coach and I wasn't sure what he knew about throwing um, because my previous, my coach in England, he himself was, a, was um, he was from um, Rhodesia at the time, I guess it was called Zimbabwe now, and he, um, and he was a hammer thrower and his wife was a discus thrower and, and his name was Howard Payne and Howard had decided that, um, was working with me and decided that America would be a great option for me as well. So that's really the impetus that led me there. But I knew Howard knew a little bit about the hammer throw. I didn't know this new coach did. And this coach's name was, uh, his name is uh, Ted McLaughlin. So I decided to test Ted McLaughlin at the throwing circle to see what he knew. Because I said to myself, one way or the other, I'm getting back to England. And if he, and if he doesn't know, I'm going to have to find out how to do it myself. But one way or the other, I'm going. So I remember being in, in the circle and intentionally making a mistake just to see if he picked it up. And he said, ah, yes, that was a pretty good throw, but you pulled your shoulder. So... Um, had you not pulled your shoulder, it would have been a good throw. So then I, I took another throw, and this time I, um, this time I brought my right foot too far around. And he said, "Yeah, that was actually a little bit better, but you brought your right foot around too far, so I think it was okay." And then the last attempt was I thrown, I was throwing the hammer, and I moved the hammer in a in a way that um, made it too far to my left. And he said, "Okay, Robert." Um, you know, that was a lot better, but, you know, you moved the hammer too far to the left, otherwise it would have been okay. So then I said, all right, I'll listen now. <laughs> it was really funny. I put, him, I put him through this test and I did pass it, so I said, I listened. And then in my first year, um, I, at the end of my first year, I went from being um, uh, the top under-20 athlete to being the top senior athlete in both the hammer and the discus. So Great Britain was desperate to get me back. To, and they flew me back, put me up in a hotel, looked after me. It was fantastic. And, um, and that's really what started my career. So Keith Conlon, in a way, was part of it. Howard Payne was another way, was part of it. And, um, and I'll touch on those two uh, later on. And then I returned back to SMU, and it was the year of the Commonwealth Games. And uh, rather than going into all the details, um, I was ranked second or third, and I ended up winning the Commonwealth Games and setting a national record. And that was in 1982. Then in 1983, I set the world indoor best with a 35-pound weight. And, of course, I'm winning NCAA titles here and there and All-American honors. And then in 1984, um, I'd uh, competed for Great Britain in the Olympics and, and uh, having one of the few dis rare distinctions in the field events of making the finals in two events. So I was a finalist in the discus and I was a finalist in the amateur. I decided I was going to um, participate and play professional football. And at the NFL level, I, would, uh, I don't think I was quite good enough at the time and then I ended up going and playing in Canada. And I played in Canada up until about 1992. I tried the NFL a couple of times. I was a lot better 
but at the time, uh, one particular time, I was going to be picked up and back to the NFL, but I'd already signed the contract in Canada, so I couldn't, and they had an agreement between them, so I couldn't break the contract. And so I ended up staying in Canada and uh, finishing my career as a football player. And then during that time, um, a year or two um, before I retired, uh, my coach, Howard Payne, had died. And, um, and, he'd, and for years and years, he kept trying to convince me to come back to athletics. And after the success I had as a hammer thrower, I decided I should return back to Britain to compete in the Olympics in 1996 after some 12 years away from being in my first Olympics. Was, um, it was quite remarkable to make the, actually make the team. Um, the, I had a, a few years where, where it started to return to a level of uh, international competition or international standard. And so, of course, there's always nerves as to whether you're going to make it or not. And, um, I, and I actually ended up winning the British Olympic trials and was uh, automatically selected to compete for Great Britain because I'd thrown that standard. And uh, it, was quite a re- it was quite a relief, but at the same time, it was a lot of excitement. Part of my... Robert, yeah. one thing. So you took this big hiatus. So what compelled you to... Because I'm kind of imagining you know, your elite-level athlete kind of, if you're not doing that every single day, you're no longer so elite. So how is it that you decide you're just going to get back in the saddle? I'm curious what was motivating you. Oh, okay. So that's a great question. So the real motivation came is that I, there's that Howard who had been a major influence in my life, which I didn't really, uh, really appreciate until after he was gone, how much of an influence he was. Um, he'd, I would still visit England when I wasn't um, competing anymore. And he kept saying to me, you know, Robert, if you were to come back, you could represent Great Britain and it would be great to have you back and it would be fantastic. And then um, at a time when people thought, well, you know, you're past your peak years, um, you shouldn't be able to do this. And Howard had died just prior to that. And I'd already promised him that I'd return. And the, and the real drive was the commitment I'd already made to him. I'd already made him a promise that I would return to athletics and compete. And, uh, and so I just felt really more a sense of um, obligation and really um, to honor my friend at the time because he was more, became more than a coach, he became a friend, that it was the best thing for me to do was to try and respect um, the, the commitment or the promise I made to him. I was under no obligation. There was no penalty. It was just a desire to say, you know what, as a friend, you supported me. At a time when others wouldn't, you were there. So I'm going to do what I can to show some level of how much I appreciate what you've done for me because he was one of the few people that really respected my athletic ability. Even when I didn't think I had any, he did. And so um, that was the motivation. And when I stopped playing football, um, I almost immediately started to return back to throwing just to... Just to um, you know, to honor that promise. And I thought I didn't have much time left to do that, but I just said, well, let's just see how far you can go. And, um, and, and as a result of which, um, the desire came and the competitiveness had never really gone away because even when I was playing football, I was competing. Either you're competing for a starting job or to be on the team or to be, be a winning team. There's always competition. And it had just become such a part of me that I couldn't imagine not having some some level of motivation, some level of drive, and something that was going to make it competitive. So that was what became important. I remember one time I, I talked to some of the other athletes, 
that were um, top-level athletes within my own country. And I talked to them about their training and talked to them about what they did. And I sort of got ideas from them as to how they felt and what they did in their training to achieve what they've achieved. And so after talking to them, I realized that the one thing he needed to do was be focused, was to have a goal and, and, and have an, an outlandish goal. It couldn't be just anything. Well, tomorrow I want to be able to, um, it was sort of like tomorrow I want to be able to run a hundred yards. It's like tomorrow I want to run a hundred miles, you know, so that sort of attitude and then see how far you go. And it was that, and that was the understanding I got from those guys was that you needed to um, really not just say, I'm going to train. You had to attack. You had to attack this with, um, with a passion and a desire to achieve. And that, was the, and that became part of the motivation for me. This is what's really fascinating because I think there's this competitive, clearly you're super competitive. Your energy in just interfacing with you in, I would say, non-athletic life, not that I would ever want to run it across <laughs> the football field with you, but so it, how do you, it, I mean, because sometimes I see people, you can just tell they're competitive, you know, they're just in, in kind of almost too you know, like out of my way, I'm going to mow you over competitive. And you don't have that at all yet. You know, I, I, I trust you're super competitive. So I'm just kind of wondering how you manage super competitive streak and wanting to, if you will, win the goal. But at the same time, it can't be about the goal only because that it's like the results are the results are the results. They are what they are. So how do you keep yourself focused on a process and not obsessed, you know, negative way with the outcome well well i think the first thing was um um you remember i talked about 100 miles when i put that sort of drive and the passion is supposed to trying to get to 100 miles but i did it in steps i didn't have to run the 100 miles in one day i had to just get to 100 miles so i broke it into um easily achieved goals and then when i achieved that goal then i raised the bar and moved it forward and before you knew it um, I'd achieved that 100 miles and, or maybe more. And the, the, uh, the competitiveness, I mean, it's, it's really funny because in my ordinary day-to-day -day activity of working and, and of that nature, I'm really far removed from the person I am when I'm competing. I, I think I'm a completely different person competing than when, I am, when I'm not competing. I think if I'm in a competitive period leading up to competition, and that's my focus, then yes, that person is on that person is there and it's with me during that time of competition. But outside of that, if there's not really competition, really easygoing, really quiet, and almost somewhat shy. But then when I'm competing, it, it, I, I'm not saying that I'm yelling and screaming and bragging. I'm not any of those things, but I'm just really focused and I get really intense and I'm really ready to do battle. And, it, and, and somehow it's almost like a bottled up um, energy if you, once you open it, once you open the top and it comes, it will just come out. And I was never, I, I remember looking at all of those crowds of people, how could I possibly compete in front of them? But then once you're really into the competition, they're not there. They're there, but they're not there. Like you're aware of them, but they're not there. You know, so it's, it's a really interesting thing for me. Did you, when with all the boys and the family, was there a competitive spirit where, where you, as, were all the, a family fairly competitive running around out duking each other. I'm just curious if the, if the childhood experience was one of a lot of competition. Well, we're not, well, yes, actually in a way. And, um, but it was, it was friendly competition. We didn't try to, uh, 
hurt each other. We tried to um, we had we tried to make it fun. It was the it was the other thing. We made it fun. Uh, you know, sort of like I bet you can't do this. You know, and and doing this maybe like doing maybe ten push-ups, and then I said, well, I did twelve. I bet you can't beat that. And then you did fifteen and things like that. I remember I remember once we had this there's this um, cereal called uh, Weetabix. And the and the competition and the competition was, you know, there's like the box is like twenty four. Like there's twenty four of these biscuits, and you have them with cereal biscuits, and you have them with milk, and then a little bit of sugar and whatever. And uh, the competition was, you know, you can't eat you can't eat six. And then it was because at the time it was like four, and somebody had six, and then before you know, it, somebody had eaten eight. Then it <laughs> then it went to ten. <laughs> then it went to ten, and I and I finally broke the record with twelve. 12 or 13, and it took me two pints of milk, like 40, ounce, like 40 ounces of milk, milk of sugar, and it was warm. And I ate that thing, and I did not eat for the rest of the day. That was the competitiveness. It was, that was incredible. Yeah. I think um, we stopped the competition then. <laughs> I think that's, that's just hilarious. Did you grow up... Um, Racially, were there was a very mixed race where you were? Did you folks uh, blend right in? Were you like the only uh, black family? And uh, what was that like for you? Um, oh, growing up in England. Growing England. Um, up in England. Yeah, well, I'd say that was all of the above. Is the answer? I mean, we we went we went to a grammar school, and that was predominantly white at that time. We had some some kids, some Asian kids, but um, Asian as in East India. And we had um, um, black kids, but it was predominantly white. And going to that school, of course, you were subjected to some of the some of the things that going with being a minority in the place. But one of the things my dad did was he said, you know, if somebody comes up to you and he says something to you, then say it right back to them. And, and, he, and he said, he said, you know, if they say that um, you're not very good, and you say, well, you're not any good either. And, you, and then you'll say, well, I'm better than you because I can do this. And, and it became a game. And those kids that were, that became so um, ready to pick on me, also, actually, all of a sudden became my friend. And they're like, "Okay, watch, that's the guy I was telling you about." And then somebody else would come up and say something to me, and I'd say it right back to them, and like, "Yeah, yeah, we really like him." And then they would protect me. It was, like, it was the strangest thing. But all of us had to deal with them. Um, we had all different levels of um, of uh, racism that we all experienced at one level or the other. And the thing is, it was some of it was very subtle. We didn't really understand what it was at the time, but on reflection, we, knew, we understood what it was. You know? Would you say more about that? Just what were those things that maybe at the time you didn't recognize, but in hindsight you do? I remember having an argument at the school with one of the students. He was a year older. And he basically, he said, well, what, has black people, what have black people ever done in this world? They've done nothing. They've done absolutely nothing. And I remember it was another, it was a... Um, another one of my schoolmates, and he was white, he steps in and says, you're wrong, black people have done a lot of, a lot of this in the country. He says, they've given us um, um, elevators, his blood transfusion, traffic lights. Um, he talked about, and in sports, he said, uh, basketball, um, world, world, uh, world-class athletes in sports, and, they, and the list went on. And, and, and so it was twofold. So first of all, that guy was trying to um, use me as an example, to say that um, you know my um, my heritage of black being black um, is of no contribution to this world at all, and then there was a guy who's white, another guy who's white, who says, "You're wrong. Here are the people. Here are some of the things that people have done." 
and he made a whole list of it. But what I also found equally disturbing was I myself, as a young young kid, a young student, had no idea at what we had accomplished as black people. And so as I got older, I started to learn more and more because you you um, you were left with the impression that um, we were just we were not people who made any contributions at any level. And of course, that couldn't possibly be true. And even growing up and representing Great Britain, that in of itself was um, a form of history for Great Britain that they had never had before. In some ways, they made a little bit of history, but in other ways, I mean, it sort of changed and that became sort of, in, in, in some other ways, it became actually, in one way directly, it became another motivator. One year, I was um, in 19, whenever it was, I was a young student, a young athlete, and, um, and one of my teammates um, um, had beaten a, an international sprinter. And they awarded him with his first ever Great Britain um, international vest. Because back then as a kid growing up, and being, representing a country was a really, really important. It was a big deal because we would have televised competitions with other countries that, would be, that you would see. And so as a kid, one of the, one of the aspirations, you aspired to be, being able to compete at that level and be on television. And so he, so this young guy, he's 17, he beat this sprinter. And so they awarded him with an international vest and he was in a big splash in how this 17-year-old beat this, this well-seasoned international athlete and now he's going to represent Great Britain. So um, a year, the following year, at age 19, I beat, I beat a uh, hammer throw. I was throwing the hammer primarily, but... I beat a hammer throw, and I beat him, and I said, well, this competition's coming up. Surely they will award me with my first ever international. And at the same time, my dad used to say to me, when I was a kid growing up, he says, he says, you know, son, you have to be at least twice as good um, as the white man to have the same opportunity. If you don't, you won't get the opportunity. And I remember saying to my dad, in sports, it's not that way in sports. In sports, is the best man wins, and the best man can go ahead because nothing can stop your performance. So then when I beat the guy in the hammer and they selected him anyway, that was when my dad's words came back to me. And it was at that point when I went to SMU, I determined that I was going to make sure that I had the choice, not somebody else, over over whether I could achieve or not. And so the following year, I became the top athlete in both the discus and the hammer. And they would and they would ask me if I wanted to compete rather than ask rather than tell me if I was able to compete or not. And it was a lesson that um, you think, oh, there's no prejudice or racism in sports or nothing like that. Only to find that there very much is that level of racism even in sports. So at every level of my experience, you know, you you get these reminders of the fact that there's this discrimination that goes on, and it's a, it's an incredible thing. But I I learned that lesson and it provided me with momentum. Rather than let it hold me back, I decided to use it to make me, to propel me forward. And I think that was a big thing for me. That's amazing, Robert. Was that, was there, was there someone to help you navigate that? You know, as a young person, all those emotions, feeling robbed, you know, I could imagine it could be very scarring and, and have very negative impacts, yet it sounds like you really rose above it. And was there someone who helped you to do that? Or was that just something you did on your own? I think, I think in retrospect, both my mom and my dad helped me with that because they were preparing us to deal with life, a life that for the most part they sheltered us from. But as we got older, it became time for us to, 
to grow, really to grow in the outside world. And so a little bit of that, what they told me, um, also helped me develop and form um, who I am uh, then as, a, as, as an athlete. But I, I don't think, I, 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 you know, it, I remember it just clearly, it just hit me when they didn't pick me and I looked in the paper and they saw that named him. And I was expecting this to be awarded with this uh, international vest, which was really, really important. That's when it hit me. That's when my dad's words came back to me. And it was that, then it became, rather than became this, that I was disgusted and, and give up, I became even more determined. I decided that that was never going to stop me from achieving my own goals. And that was part of them. That was, that when it, that was part of the fuel that, that drove me to, um, to, really, to, to really try to excel in, in the sport. It was, it was quite something because I never realized that, um, I never really realized that um, my dad's words would be, such a, would be so valuable and so important. And he, and he told me other things throughout my life to, to prepare me so that I would be, uh, you know, so I'd be, be in a position you know, for whatever it was that I wanted to do in my life. So, um, very inspiring. And my mom was also very inspiring and encouraging because you learned that you can't achieve anything unless you set your mind to it and unless you prepare to work hard and you don't use a set, you don't use the setbacks as setbacks. You use them as hurdles to overcome because as you overcome those hurdles, you get one step closer to where you want to be. And so when, when I'm dealing with negative situations, I try to find a way if I can overcome this, I can go forward. Now, part of that may make you stubborn, but for the most part, usually you can overcome them. The problem is, the, the, the problem is of course, you don't know how much of an obstacle it really is, but the mindset is, is that that is not going to stop me, rather than the mindset is they've stopped me because of this. So it, it, took, the, it took away the excuses, really, for me. Wow. When you... Segway, because you were competing and then you got into coaching. Can you share a bit about how you think about this, folks, when you have a career change, right? But you, here you are, you're competing, and then, you know, you obviously have this ability to help others and unleash their potential. How did, how did you get going in the coaching career? It's really funny because um, my degree was from, uh, from SMU was uh, in management information systems. And it, was a, it was a kind of degree that, that I should have went on and did finance and accounting. But, I, but I, my heart wasn't in it, but I really enjoyed um, sports. And I remember one day my coach said to me, he said, you know, Robert, you should be a coach. I said, I said what do you mean? I said, well, how, like, how would you decide that? He said, I just have this, um, this idea that, you should, that you'd make a great coach. And he knew, he knew one of the coaches at Brown University. And he arranged for me to go there to try and see if I would like coaching. And at the same time, you know, it was immigration and you had a visa and all those other things, a temporary visa. So with the temporary uh, visa, I went, I went um, to Brown University and I really loved it. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I made the practices and the training fun. Um, athletes improved. Everything got better. So I, was, I didn't realize it then, but that was the other thing. That was something that was uh, the other thing that really I was interested in. I was also um, a stockbroker. I had my stockbroking license. And, and the way that they were doing business back then, I didn't like it. And I, but I loved coaching. So eventually... I transitioned out of being in investments and into uh, and into into uh, coaching. But I dare say that had you met the right people in investments, uh, you know, I mean, I might have been a, a really successful broker today. But you know, you can you can dwell on those things. But you, but but really, what was so much fun for me was the coaching. I didn't realize that you had stints in um, finance and yeah. that that was your 
background. And so why are you so successful in coaching? And maybe talk a bit about some of the athletes because they're not minor, the ones that you have helped. And, uh, you know, I think of coaching when you think about it in the broadest sense beyond athletics is really, I think, a key skill, whether you're a leader or anyone um, working with colleagues, the ability to help, you know, coach up people, I just think is one of these skills going forward that more and more is going to be essential. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I had no idea um, about myself in coaching, but I did know that people got better and I did know that they improved and I did know that, um, that, um, that they really appreciated um, um, what I, what I did as a coach. And I didn't, I just went in there with the intention of just trying to make them a better athlete here, a better athlete there in the events. And it, and it evolved into um, great relationships and great friendships. I mean, one of the, one of, there's a top doctor, you know, an orthopedic surgeon in the, in the United States, and his name is Dr. Brian Kelly. And I was his coach when he was in, uh, at Brown University. And what's funny is, is that when you look at his, his resume, or CV as we call it in Britain, you look at it, it is like a book with all the things he's done. But one of the first, first things you see on this page is that he was a NCA highly ranked hammer thrower. So that speaks volumes about how important the sport of track and field was and the, the coaching that he had was to him. And we're in touch, we're in touch today. He's, a, you know, the surgery, the surgery that A-Rod had for his hip, he was the yeah. doctor that did the surgery. You know, just <laughs> give you an example. And, and then uh, and there was another guy, um, and his name is um, Jerry Danini. And Jerry Danini um, was a student at Brown, and he went to the NCAAs in the shop put and was a school record. And, and I think he's currently still a school record holder in, in the shop put indoors and outdoors. I'm not sure about that part. But um, Jerry has become a very, very successful investment banker, very successful. And, and Jerry, and, and, um, and what was, this one was particularly funny for me because um, – I hadn't heard, spoken to Jerry in quite a while and I reached out and said, you know, hello or something. And I called his house and his wife answered the phone as if she was screening the call. Like, who is this? And I said, um, hello, this is, uh, you know, Robert, could I speak to, to Jerry, please? And she said, um, Robert, who? I said, oh, Robert, wait. And she said, oh, wait, just a minute. Wait, I've just got, I've got to get him. Hold on, hold on. And she ran and got Jerry and we spoke for a little bit and funny. And then, um, and then a couple of years later we, we met because um, we hadn't seen each other for a while. And then his wife said to me, you're the guy, yeah, um, Jerry keeps talking about. I said, I said, what did I do? She said, I don't know what you did. I said, but he's the, he talks about how he's able to achieve what, he, what he's achieved in part because of me. I said, I'm not sure that that's true. And I met Jerry, he goes, yeah, yeah, it's true. I, I tell him that all the time. And she said, well, how long did he work with Jerry for? Because he is absolutely taking what you've done for him. And in the back of my mind, I keep saying, what exactly did I do? <laughs> But then, but then she said, how long did you work with him? I said, well, I, I worked with Jerry for about a year. And I remember her saying, a year? A year? One year? That's it? A year? And it was very funny to me because apparently within that period of time, I had changed Jerry's outlook at some level. At least this is the story that she tells me at some level that helped him go on to be so successful in what he does. And I thought that all I was doing was helping this guy get better. <laughs> and it turns out it was far more than that. And so... You know, in the point of this is that sometimes you have no idea the impact that you have, or what is so what 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 something you're doing, how the impact on that person, how much it means to them, and you find out later on. 
because when they're successful, everything else, and they and the, and their wife, or they they tell you how much you impacted their life, that's really something. There was there was a girl at Stanford, and her name is um, Sammy Jo Small, and she's an Olympic medalist, gold medalist in women's ice hockey. She's got I think two gold medals and a silver, representing Canada at the highest level in the Olympics. And um, and so she had a book that came out. The book's called The Role I Played. And she was a heck of an athlete. I remember being at um, Stanford with her and the head coach saying, you know, she can't, she can't do hockey anymore because she's on a scholarship for track and field. And I remember after about a week, I couldn't take it anymore because I, I couldn't take it anymore because she did everything she was supposed to do, but her life would be, it's like a part of her was missing. And she'd come to practice, her head was down. I'd talk to her. She'd mumble a word back until she just, she was just not the same person. So I went to the coach and I said, she has to do track. She has to do hockey. He said, what do you mean she has to do hockey? I said, she's just not the same athlete. She has to do hockey. I mean, I, uh, and I couldn't believe I was advocating for somebody in a sport other than what I was coaching. He said, well, all right, if that's how you feel. I said, yep, that's exactly how I feel. So I said, all right, Sammy, no more. You, you can do hockey. And she came back to life. <laughs> she came back. It was like, the, you know, the, all of a sudden the sunshine came out and the, everything was wonderful. But she wrote me a note in a, in a book and she said, uh, and in the note it says, Robert, thank you for being an incredible inspiration in my life. Your strength, perseverance, and unyielding belief in me allowed me to reach heights beyond my imagination. I hope you enjoy. Forever my coach, Sammy Joe. So I, I sent Sammy Joe, I said, oh, Sammy Joe, you don't have to say things like that. I said, it was very nice of you. And she said, but she said it in a voice that was very serious. She said, I meant every word that I wrote. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so that was, that was another one that shocked me. Um, I tell you, um, and along those lines, Another really um, interesting story was uh, uh, as part of Stanford um, University and the swimming coach was Richard Quick, who was a world-famous world swim coach. And, uh, and, and Richard one day came up to me and says, you know, Robert, I have two athletes that I want you to, to um, work with. And I said, well, what two athletes are they? He says, Jenny Thompson, who turns out to be one of the most decorated Olympic um, gold medalists for, for the United States in, in swimming, and Derek Torres, who's was very famous and for good looks and very famous for the fact that she used to use Taibo in her training and, and all of those things. So these are two athletes in his, that he said, I want you to work with them. And I said, I said, okay. I said, well, what are they doing now? And, and long story short, he had he'd arranged it so that the coach he was working with, I now became their coach. In the wintertime, they have this swimming course called a short course and a long course during the summer. A short course is half the length and you swim back and forth and all those other things. But, um, in the short course, um, um, I just changed. I did an assessment on Jenny's training. I said, Jenny, you need to have more power, so we're going to change your program to increase your power in the water and everything else. And they were. And the same turns out, the same weekend, she had a um, she had a competition. Richard said he went upstairs into the stands and he's watching a swim. And he said, while she was warming up, she's while she was warming, she says, I hate that Robert Weir. I am so sore. I hate him. So Richard said, Oh well, you're going to swim the rest, and I'll go up into the stands. And Richard said he has it started in stands. And he's looking at the watch, you know, watching watch it determine the pace. And he said, oh, that's not bad. And his friend said to him, he said, not bad. That's the world record pace, you idiot. And it turns out that she broke the world record after a weekend of, uh, of me working with her. And, um, and what was so funny was um, she came back and didn't say anything. And all of a sudden, you know, this is what, she, what we're doing today. Instead of just complaining, she just jumped right into the training, which was funny. Dara, she really excelled. Her age was, as far as she was concerned, was not relevant to what she wanted to do. What she wanted to do was X, and she was going to do X, and that was all there is to it. 
and um, and she was and she was somebody that really worked hard and trained hard and and she was quite successful. I think at the 2000 Olympics, um, at the 2000 Olympics, I was there as an athlete competing. Um, Jenny Thompson was there um, swimming, and so was Derek Torres. And I think Derek went on to win five Olympic medals in that Olympics. But anyway, um, but uh, what was funny was. Uh, Whereas Jenny was always complaining, Daryl would just smile and then just get on with working. And then later on, she'd tell me how hard it was. <laughs> and I didn't realize, I didn't realize, but she had to smile. And what I thought was smiling was her grimacing. So it was, it was very funny. But then one day I said to Richard, I said, I said, Richard, I said, I said, you're a world class swim coach. I said, you could have any, um, any coach or anybody work with your young athletes. And I said, these are the crown jewels of your, you know, these are the crown jewels of the jewels that you do have. And I said, so, I said, of all people, I said, why me? And he turned to me and he said, Robert, don't think I didn't do my homework. He said, I've been watching you and watching the way you work with the athletes and watching the way that, that, that they've been developing. I knew what I was getting when I, when I got you to work with Jenny and with Dara. And I was shocked because I, you, you know, you, you go about your business, you don't think anyone's really paying attention to what you're doing. And all of a sudden, you know, I had this really, I had this, the swim coach, this world-class, world-famous swim coach. He'd been the Olympic swim coach at six Olympics and things like that. And he came up to me and he, and he, and, and of all the people who could ask, he asked me specifically to train his athletes. And they were successful. And I don't know that I, I don't know that, um, what it was that I did, but I know that he appreciated what I did. You know, so. So you, you are so humble and I love it. Now, you have to give yourself some credit here. So I'm wondering if I ask you, why are you so successful in helping athletes, you know, get out of their way, achieve their potential? What is it about you, you think, and how you relate to them that unleashes all this potential? I don't know, to be honest with you, what it is that I do. I can tell you what I do, and maybe from that you can guess or maybe have an idea, I try to understand what it is the athlete is trying to achieve. I try to understand what it is that the coach wants with the athlete, if, you know, in a different sport. And then, and then it becomes like a, a working relationship slash partnership. And within that partnership, you identify where the athlete is strong, you identify where they're weak, and, um, and you build up their strength and you build up their confidence and um, one of the things that you find is that, um, you know, you, you, try these, um, you try these other, you try these other, um, um, like a give and take or like a um, trial by error. You have an idea where it is and you know that, say, for example, it's within this area. So trial by error and then you find out the areas that they, that they can relate to best. And then there's a the connection made with the training. And then because you help them find that connection, then they seem to have a little bit more trust and it builds the relationship. And then before you know it, we're both working towards the same thing. Um, I always feel that, I always look at it this way, that if, if there's just two forces, if there's, I've, I have two forces and she has two forces and we go head to head, it's zero because we're, you know, we're actually combating each other with zero. But if those two forces combine, it becomes four. And I think that's part of the attitude that I have. And I think that's part of what, um, you know, work, have a working relationship with the athletes because if something's not right, I'm prepared to make the adjustment. If something is going well, I'm prepared to make the adjustment. And, and, and throughout all of that partnership is that 
you know, you, you rely on your experience as a coach, you rely on your experience as an athlete, you rely on your experiences of working with other athletes to really narrow down the things that work. Can we segue to, um, you know, you've got these two great kids, how your work as a coach has helped, if it has um, or not, parenting and the similarities and the differences. Um, similarities. Well, the similarities are, is that um, some of the lessons my father told me as a kid, I've told my kids, but I told them that they have to work at least twice as hard and realize that may not be enough. So I said, that's the challenge. And then I do everything I can to help them with those challenges. Um, I think in terms of coaching, my, my daughter, um, she is an aspiring hammer thrower. She competes for Canada. She's thrown the hammer um, past the Olympic standard. And um, she's getting herself ready for Tokyo and um, plans to do really well there. And I just try to be a support because I think sometimes as a coach, um, you want more for your daughter than you want more for the, your, your kids than they do for than they do for themselves. And, and in her case, it's not that's not true. But what is true is that maybe you're pushing harder than you would than you would somebody else. And you know, rather than have it backfired, I'd rather be the dad and supporter as best as I can. And so that's what I've chosen to do with them. With my son. He, he, he did not, um, he, he, want, he was interested in athletics for a little while, but then he couldn't complete it because at the time there was just, it was just a wrong timing. It was just a bad, bad timing with him. And so he had made these choices and of what he wanted to do, and, which is just going to business and work. And, uh, and then we're still very supportive of each other. I talk to him and encourage him and support him and give him some advice. And he, either he takes it or he doesn't take it, but it's his choice. And, um, and, and we have a partnership, a, a working relationship. Now, it's very clear that I'm dad. It's, also, it's very clear that I'm dad, but at the same time, I allow them to be themselves. I cannot um, take away from the fact that they're young adults now and they're moving up in the world and doing things like that. But um, yeah, if sometimes if issues or, or concerns come up, they'll, they will call me and ask me what I think, and then I'll tell them and then they'll decide. But the one thing they do know is that there's a foundation for them that if they fall down, I'll help them get on their feet and then they have to choose what they're going to do next. Nice. Nice. Do you, uh, when you reflect on your life here, any, you know, assuming you are where you are, right, and you still have yeah. the same situation, any regrets or, or do-overs that you yes. would share? Absolutely. There are, num there are a number of them. But perhaps the most, perhaps the biggest one was sometimes you don't realize the, the impact and the influence you have on other people. My, so I, I went to America and studied and, and did things like, um, you know, track and field and athletics and sports. Now, also in Britain, track and field is a big sport. During the summer, it's big. It's televised and people know who you are and they recognize you in, in the streets and things like that. And uh, one of the fun things, one of the fun things was, um, I went into a, a department store and Robbie and Jillian, the kids, um, they didn't, they, was long, when they were little, they were like, I don't know, um, five and seven, something like that. I would walk into a store and I took them into the store and then I would walk along and I wouldn't say anything. And then somebody, then somebody would turn and point and they'd go whisper, whisper, and you'd hear Robert Weir and they'd point to me. And uh, I, would, I wouldn't say anything. And, and Jillian's like, Dad, what's, what's going on? I said, nothing. And Robbie's like, Dad, so, something's going on. Why is that person looking at you? I said, I don't know. So they, Maybe they made a mistake. They think I look like somebody I'm not. Don't, don't worry about it. And after a while, they figured it out. They figured out that I was recognized. And, you know, in this part of the world, I was, you know, uh, in, at least in Europe, I was an uh, international athlete. And so being that it was a big sport, they recognized me. 
but you know, so that part was fun. But my big one of my bigger regrets is that I left track and field um, so early because I did not realize that my presence on television or as an athlete had impact on other people in Britain and some people of color. Not everybody. I'm not saying it's massive audience, but I'm saying that it could have been because um, in my in my years when I was coming into my peak peak years is when I left the sport and rather than staying the sport and. Um, my brother told me the story that he was speeding late at night on his way home. And while he was speeding, right. um, like while he was speeding, he got pulled over. Right. Yeah, the police, the policeman that picked him up um, was a black policeman that pulled him off speed. was a black policeman. And he pulled him over, asked for his license and insurance. And he gave him the license. And he looked at the insurance and says, um, Weir, um, do you know a Robert Weir? He says, yeah, that's my brother. The policeman turned to him and said, right, this ticket is on me. He says, you may not know this. He said, but you may know this, but um, your, your brother was on television at a time when I was in the police force and they were giving me a particularly hard time. But when they saw my, said, but when they saw your brother on television, they changed their approach. They changed their attitude towards me, towards me because here was a very successful, well, at least in their eyes, athlete competing for Great Britain and doing these wonderful things or whatever it was. And I said, and he, and he said, that guy, he said, and your brother saved me. I said, he didn't know it, but he saved me. And it's a regret like that is that I, had I known that I would have returned back to England and I would have done more in the sport because uh, at home, because I didn't realize that I had such an impact. I just had no idea. And my brothers told me that later on. And, uh, and it was quite something. I mean, there was, there was a lot of pride in uh, you know competing for your country, but there's a lot more pride when um, when people of color um, recognize you, and therefore, if they recognize you, other people recognize you to the extent that um, that um, you had such an influence on their on their on their lives or in their careers. And I just had no idea, and so that's one of my regrets. I think also in my peak years, I would have had much better performances, and maybe would have come come back. I mean, you, you don't know really because you never know how you're going to do in competition, but. I would have come back with a lot more, um, uh, let's just say, um, accomplishments as far as in the sport of track and field. But, you know, the other side has been good too. But yeah, that's one of my regrets. Um, That's probably the biggest one because being able to impact um, people and people of color, especially uh, at a time when um, maybe they were given such a hard time and not knowing that your presence or or what you did had an influence on people. Not knowing those things, I mean, you, you just, I just didn't think of myself in that way, and only to find out that was exactly what I was. What, uh, Robert, you know, we're in this world where people are trying to understand, uh, trying to, you know, create space for all. Would you share a thought or two for listeners? What do you think they could do um, to help, you know, unify, to bring us together? Well, that's a big, that's a very big question. I, I think, um, I, I don't know what, what everyone can do. I can only say what I've done and, and then maybe might give others an ideas. But I mean, I, I, I think more than anything else, one of the things that you do is that you try to, you try to be the example of good. You try to be the example of, of in the face of adversity, regardless of the circumstances, you try to be the person of, uh, of letting your actions um, and good intentions speak for you. 
and, and and usually what you'll find is you'll find people who come and support you. I mean, I I, I don't think that um, um, I don't I, I do think that some people can and some people do change um, the world and people's perspective. But if, but when you do little things here and there to help others and they see the value of what you're trying to do, it can it can motivate others to continue to do the same thing. And and those combined efforts may make a bigger difference than than some of the other stuff that we see. I mean, if somebody's struggling and you, you help, you give them a hand and you help them up, you just never know. You just don't know who they are. You just don't know um, the impact you'll have in their life. You don't know the influence. But you, but if you, if that's your nature of trying to trying to help somebody or trying to return the favor of good, then uh, it, it it just grows as opposed to. If you do terrible things, I mean, that grows too. Like, he did this to me, I'm going to do that to that person. Well, he did something good for me, then I'm going to try and do good for somebody, for, for others. And while I was at Stanford, and some of the students, I mean, I was, and they, and they had um, success relatively, that was, that was good or beyond for what they expected. I would always say to them, I said, remember who helped you. And if you have a chance, help others and have them pass it on. Because I said, you just never know. I said, you might help somebody you think nothing of and only to find uh, um, uh, only, only to find that um, your actions have inspired other people to do good and to do very good things. But it's um, you know in the in the world today, um, you try to set aside your differences and look at what your common goals and your common values are, and then you do those things. I mean, I I, I think that um, um, like some of my friends are um, you know politically we don't have the same agreements, we don't have the same feelings. But if you don't lose sight of the fact that you're friends then you, lose, you can lose sight of everything else. And, and one of my friends, um, you know, um, where he went to school in, Dallas, in the SMU in Dallas, Texas, he said his experiences have changed his life. He talks about unity, he talks about family, he talks about strength, and he said it was from meeting um, really people, other people from around, from around the world that's helped change his perspective and helped change his viewpoints. Now, he still have very strong American values, but he's saying, but when you look at, when you look at what America stands for, he said those values are what America is. And, um, and I have to agree with him. I mean, America is one of um, United. It's, it's called United States for a reason. And people have to be reminded that at the end of the day, that they're a united country. They're, they're from different parts and different walks of life. But in sports, you can come together because you have a common goal. And the common goal for others should be to seeing everyone else being successful. But some people have a different view of that, but that's my view, and that's what I try to do. Very wise words and very motivating, my friend. Um, oh, you've, been very, you've been very generous. One closing question. Uh, what was sharing your story like? What was it like for you? Uh, tough. <laughs> I, think, I, think sharing my, I think sharing my story, the goal, the goal of sharing my story was to let people know that I'm – to let people know, some people, should I say, that um, I still have the same uh, ups and downs and the same struggles as everybody else, but you try to, um, I try to take a step forward. That was the purpose. Isn't it? You take a step forward, and before you know it, you've covered more ground than you realize. Before you know it, you've done a lot more than you thought you could do. But you only know those things when you look back. At the same time, you just, at, the same, at that moment in time, you're still doing the same struggles. You're still doing the same things to get ahead. That's what you try to do. Oh, you're amazing. Do you have, in closing, um, having heard yourself, you know, share a particular top takeaway, uh, whether it's about yourself or about your journey or about your impact on others that you'd like to share? Um, 
my 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 true feelings my my true feelings is um has been the lessons that my parents have taught me um which and part of that i mean it sounds like a cliche but it's worked for me and that is um be honest try to do the right thing and when you when you when you're given the choice try to do the make the best choice that's going to impact not only yourself but others because you never know who you're going to help or who you're going to inspire by your words or your actions or even your deeds and and sometimes just sometimes the the effort you put into helping somebody get ahead sometimes ends up with them coming back to help you get ahead and that's been a direct experience that I've had so uh, my closing words is is that uh um is reach for the stars. You, 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 may not, you may not get to the stars, but you might still land on the moon. <laughs> I love it. You are the best. I thank you, my friend. I'm here for you. Um, I'll thank you like I thank all folks uh, for being part of the solution. You make the world better. Thank you, Robert. You're very, very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Oh, so amazing. Okay, my thought for the week courtesy of Aristotle, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show and amplify Robert's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. Skillfully too.